look at you all grown up into a dashing man. The last time I saw you, just an awkward boy, didn't know your ass from the back of your hand. My lady say they saw you online. My name is Jane Entwistle, and you're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live show in Echo Park, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written, letters they've received, correspondence back and forth, or letters we wish we could write. Renee Parker is a writer, actress, and comedian who will read a love letter from 20 years ago. It was New Year's Eve in the French Quarter, and Renee, who was then going by her real name, Marisol, and her friends were at Café du Monde when in walked Brock, ex-model with feathered hair, who took her breath away. After their brief encounter that night, they went their separate ways, but carried on a brief correspondence by mail. So, it starts off. Le 3, John Vier, 1994, Mississippi. Marisol. You're right. The phone cannot replace what I feel when I look in those eyes you got. Dig it? Can you imagine out of the thousands of faces floating and wandering through the quarter and passing, I saw your face. I remember thinking to myself in that fleeting moment, who is she, as you disappeared into a crowded street only to find you, without my knowing why, sitting there at Café du Monde. So I'm thinking to myself again, as most humans do, all within milliseconds of seeing you sitting at that table, who is doing this? Why am I finding you again? Ah, (laughs) I just talked to you, it's Sunday night, and I have to change ink cartridges. <laughs> Love it, purple and black. Um, damn the phone, I just got sidetracked for 20 minutes. I hate that. The odds of seeing you twice in one night in the quarter on New Year's Eve are quite large, ne sais pas. Go figure why. Sharing the New Year was very cool with you, just to hold your hand and feel so good without having to say a word. I was flying across moons, galaxies away, and back in a time, right? into time over planes and straight through my heart. Does that make sense? Probably as much as the 24 hours we have known each other. But so what? Strangeness happens, and it was and is beautiful strangeness that I want to feel again. Please believe me when I say that I haven't felt so happy in a long while. A long, long, long while. I want to ask you again if and how much it weirds you out that I am 32. Uh, By the way, I know, I thought he was like 24. So, um, by the way, I was 19. (laughs) Uh, Which made it actually so much more exciting. Um, Plus the fact that I am divorced or will be officially legally so in June. (laughs) How does that make you feel, if anything at all? I was 28 when I got married, and like I said, it all happened very fast, and then he kind of goes off about, you know, his, his wife, her name is Irina, she was three years older than him, married to a man 30 years older than her, he's learned a lot from it, he's now a stronger person, he knows himself better, Marisol. I want to see you, 
And if my hunch is right, which it is usually, then I'll be coming to Houston soon to see you. If that is to happen for me, because I want to look into your big brown eyes and fall. <sighs> I want to hold you and dance all night again and again with you in my arms. Caress your hair and look again inside your soul and feel, feel your strength soar through me with peace and serenity. You know I hesitate to say that which I truly feel for you, but you are definitely occupying my brain waves. <laughs> Okay, um, look, I know that these streams of consciousness are piss poor for a first letter, but see what I mean? I could understand if you choose not to respond. Could is the key here. Conditional phrases do not carry weight in my book. I won't understand. I will see you again, Marisol, if all outside forces bless us with such. There is such sweet care in your eyes. I fall so deep, all I want to do is to spend time kissing and listening to you. Move together as music fills, and then I couldn't read what it said. <laughs> With the songs that love creates deep inside. De façon, je tente de te nouvelle, s'il n'y a que deux mots de toi, mes lettres de foi. Cela me hermo, il faut murmurer une photo. Okay, toi, c'est obligatoire. Écoute-moi, fond de ta mema, je t'embrasse. I want pics of these subito, subito, a presto, brock. I know there's a lot more to say, but I just wanted to get this sucker in the mail. Pronto. Washta, it's Sue for farewells, except it means forever. So, like, four languages in one letter. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so I got this, and then we talked on the phone like the following day, and that's when he found out that I was 19. So I thought he was 24. Turns out he thought I was 24. But you know what? I'm sorry, he was divorced. I thought that was like, or in the middle of the divorce, I thought that was like, held a lot more weight than me being 19. I was a very mature 19-year-old, which I think I still am. Uh, so I sent him this letter right here, which was returned to sender, and I've not opened it since 1994. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> and the back it's very important that you read this. Don't worry, it's not a freak letter. <laughs> so you know it or not. I have no idea. All right. I just put the date. Brock. You're probably a, oh my God. 19 year old me, it's gonna be okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> You're probably a little surprised at the fact that I'm writing to you. Well, dot, 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 I'm a little surprised too. Don't worry, this isn't a, and I don't know why I put it in squiggly letters, romantic letter or anything. <laughs> I had figured from the last time we spoke that it was dead on your side. Oh my god, I don't remember that. Actually, I'm writing to you for the same reason I last tried calling you. I just wanted to thank you for making me incredibly happy and alive. 
for a few hours. <laughs> Going back to the idea that moments are the building blocks to a person's history. <laughs> Though you lasted as long as every other guy I've seen in the last three years. <laughs> continued for another seven. Um, <laughs> the moment I spent with you will always be remembered as something special, seeming longer than it actually was, and a definite, three underlines, turning point in my life. It, it made me do a 180. Now I'm lost, confused, searching for who I am, and it's good for me. Thanks. <laughs> Also, thanks for never having been gross with me. <laughs> you never, at least, treated me like an object. I don't believe it's because of your age. The 30-year-olds that I've dated were as gross gross as the 20-year-olds I've dated. Nope, I believe it's because you're from what I know, a cool person. It's nice to remind oneself that one has met at least one nice guy. Not that you're the only one, but rather one of just a few. <sighs> By the way, I was very surprised at the fact that you never wrote me the note I had requested from you. The one about you didn't care to hear from me again, or just didn't care. I was a little disappointed. You seem to be a straightforward type. What's a little worse, however, is that we weren't able to keep a friendly correspondence. It might sound very cliche, but I did hope we could stay friends. You're way too much fun, too fun to talk to, and too good of a dancer <laughs> to just never wish to hear from you again. Plus, I like knowing people all over the country. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Hope everything is going well for you in your life. I'm not expecting a letter back. It was just very important for me to express my gratitude. Thanks for having popped into my life. You were really great. Exclamation point. Marisol. <laughs> Stephanie McCannellis is a TV producer and writer with a long history in the theater, and she reads a letter to her brain. Hello. So uh, this is not really a letter. This is a letter that I wrote to my brain, telling it I would like to fire it. So. <clears throat> to whom it may concern... Before we get into the matters at hand, I would first like to thank you for the bitchin' ACT verbal scores. 99th percentile. And after spending my entire grade school and high school career scoring below 50 percentile on all the phys ed tests, it sure was nice to beat all of you at something. And while we're at it, thank you for the words. Words like ostentatious, cantankerous, and obstreperous 
which when you use them when you're seven, will get you nicknames like Library Girl. And while we're at it, thanks for the early reading. That was really useful because Library Girl didn't have a lot of friends or a very busy social calendar. But now my standardized test days are behind me, and most of the time that we spend together these days is listening to you enumerating all of the dangers that I come into contact with on a daily basis. You remind me that I should look both ways when I cross the street, and that I should check for oncoming traffic when turning left, and that the sushi at Whole Foods is teeming with bacterium, that the mole on my arm is cancer, the rash on my ankle is definitely a flesh-eating virus, and that the middle of the night is an excellent time to ruminate on my lack of primitive survival skills in the case of an earthquake or the apocalypse. <laughs> we have discussed this. Forecasting disaster is actually not your job. Therefore, let this letter show that as of this day, October the 8th, I am putting this organ known as my brain on notice. I want a divorce. I want to put you up for adoption. I want to abandon you in a Petco parking lot like the lunatic, fear-mongering animal that you are. And if I do, maybe somebody will pick you up, take you home, and give you a cute name like Badger or Phoebe and cut your balls off. That's a little harsh. You are, after all, a part of me. And my family actually trained me to see you as my most valuable asset. Because according to my mother, it was my giant brain that separated me from other people, not social awkwardness, or knock knees, or sway back, or the slowest non-disabled 100-yard dash time in McKinley <laughs> Elementary School history. No, I was alone at recess because I was smart. And according to my mother, this alienation would bring me further age-inappropriate gifts like character. <laughs> However, I discovered in kindergarten that this same amazing brain could actually not tell right from left and had a very difficult time learning how to tell time. But everyone had already told me that I had this really great brain, so I ran around first grade lugging a copy of the 224-page nonfiction novel Born Free, claiming to have read the whole thing. <laughs> Which I hadn't. I mean, I probably could have read it, and I think I started at some point, but it was boring, so I stopped. And still, I told every adult who would listen to me that I had, and essentially acted like the seven-year-old version of an annoyingly precocious undergraduate. My father, a college professor, was obsessed with the gloriousness of his own brain. His children rated an importance somewhere equal to or slightly below his undergraduates. So the origin of this brain-centered paradigm I used to prove my self-worth is obvious to the point of being simple. Then I failed and failed and continued to fail at math. And my parents, who reminded me almost daily of the superiority of the McCandless intellect, just shrugged when I brought them my math issues. McCandlesses aren't good at math, said my mom, and then she turned around and went back to Masterpiece Theater. As the years went on and my GPA stayed stubbornly at around 2.5, my brain was credited or blamed for my failure at normal school. My mother murmured while looking at an early report card that perhaps I was so smart that public school was boring me to the point of incompetence. 
my genius would go unrecognized until it had the work that was truly worthy of it. And so I continued to carry my brain around like a prize pig or a Raja whose feet cannot touch the ground. And the book set I got for my 10th birthday was a series about a smart and mischievous little Mormon boy back at the turn of the century called what? The Great Brain. It would be years before I would figure out that my family wasn't chock full of geniuses. We were just really verbal. We were all voracious readers. Everyone in my family reading and reading and reading and trying to tunnel their way to some better, more specific verbiage to sum up how shitty everybody was feeling. <laughs> and due to certain family dysfunctions, we were all feeling pretty shitty. But our brains, our spongy survival tools had decided it would be safer if we believed that feelings were for stupid people. So smart people had psychology, dialectical criticism, and black humor, which is like regular humor with extra bummer on top of it. <laughs> Therefore, if your dad throws a giant tantrum before dinner and then storms off to eat by himself at McDonald's and your mom starts crying over the stove, this is a great time to talk about how grandma lived in the old days where women weren't treated like people and that was why she was such a terrible mother to my dad who had an insecurity complex and possibly an Oedipal complex and cue the gouging out the eyes joke here because humor, even dark humor, can make things seem warm and safe again. At this point, I probably should have recognized that the only algebraic equation I would ever learn from my family is feeling terrible plus intellect divided by humor equals being okay with feeling terrible. <laughs> yay, feeling terrible, and yay, brain. Time passed, I grew up, I moved away from my family. I had issues with integration. Don't get me wrong, my brain loves me, it wants me to survive. And for the purpose of safety, it has run complicated interceptions around my heart. It has walled off possibilities with stuff that look like knowledge, but is in fact just conjecture. A pocket full of shiny raccoon junk imbued with meaning and sold with the intonation of truth. My brain and heart have been so out of touch that occasionally when my heart takes over, my brain rides along screaming like a kidnap victim. <laughs> In those few moments of heart-directed anarchy, I am speeding away from everything rational on a greyhound bus towards an unknown future. And just like a greyhound bus, that heart-directed action eventually feels dangerous, unfamiliar, and smelly. And usually I get off the heart bus and call my brain to come pick me up. They say the brain is boundless, that we only use 10% of its capacity. And that 10% capacity uses up 20% of our available energy at any moment as our thoughts and reactions race around the worn rut of neural pathways we've been developing since early childhood. Why is it so hard to just change? And why does my brain have to treat every new thing like a hobo rushing at it out of a dark alley? <laughs> but don't worry, my tiny spongy brain. I'm not going to drill a hole in my skull or sign up for a voluntary electroshock. You aren't really that bad. You helped me write this letter. 
I just want you to be less vigilant, less on edge. I'd like you to take a nap once in a while or find a good hobby, maybe like algebra. Finally, love, Stephanie. David Rosaski is a master improviser and teacher who was the artistic director of Second City. He improvises a letter based on an audience suggestion. So what I'd like from you is can someone suggest a theme, like a breakup letter, and David's going to improvise it. I want a divorce. A divorce letter. All right. Mr. Rosaski? Thank you. February 14th, 2011. (laughs) Dear Kevin, I know I told you I wasn't going to contact you again, but I've told you many things, just as you've told me. This letter, handwritten, not typed, as analog as it could be, comes from the heart and the brain and the muscles. (laughs) I saw that you got a new car. Congratulations. It's good to see that the money you made on our house sale is being put to good use. A hybrid, how nice. I'm so glad you didn't buy the Miata. Everyone thinks you're gay anyway. (laughs) Not that the Miata would matter. But I guess a Prius will do. I just want you to know that you left a number of things in the garage and at any point you can come and get them. It would be, well, untrue if I told you I didn't go through them. There were boxes of things like instruction manuals for phonographs. There were things like warranties for heaters, space heaters. There was a receipt for a tent that you and I had bought. We never went camping, did we? You never liked camping. And there were letters, hundreds of letters, letters that you sent me in high school, letters that you sent me in college, Letters, postcards, missives, little notes, shards of paper with our initials on it inside of a heart with an arrow running through. (laughs) Scraps of paper that you left from your car, dropping one after another, after another, after another, leading from the car to the front door, up the stairs, saying, this way, Keep going, keep moving, just a little further, push the door open. Do you remember that? Do you recall? I do. Sometimes those memories make me happy. Sometimes those memories make me angry. But never do those memories not have anything connected to them. Emotion, feeling, thoughts, memories, history, facts, truth. My facts and your facts, well, it's fact. Some were facts and some were truth. You always used to say, what's a fact? Historical, scientific, mathematic. What's a truth? 
What you think a fact is, it doesn't make it a fact. It makes it a truth. I saw you the other day on Larchmont. <laughs> Who was that? She doesn't look anything like me. You've certainly moved on. Ha 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 Yes, you've moved on. Has she graduated college yet? Does she know what the sound of a busy signal or what a broken record really is? You always used to say how funny it was, Hey 19, that Steely Dan song, how it didn't apply and it would never apply. Does it apply? <laughs> hey 19, that's Retha Franklin. She don't remember Queen of Soul. I hope you two last long, if that is what it is, that you have something that it is what it is, that relationship, that connection. I hope that she knows the songs, knows the songs, knows the history. I hope she knows who Bobby Kennedy is. I hope she knows who John Kennedy is. I hope she can spell the word benign. <laughs> Does she know who Dick Van Dyke is? Does she know who Gene Kelly is? Danny Kaye. Have you watched White Christmas with her? Have you laughed at the choreography? Have you? Yes, it's Valentine's Day. Funny. Our divorce would go through on Valentine's Day. Ironic, isn't it? The fact that the one love that we had is fictional. No more hearts. No more initials. No more arrows. No more shards of paper going from here to there, leading into a bedroom. In my mind, I hear church bells. <laughs> Even though we got married at the courthouse. How strange I would hear church bells now. Church bells 12 years after, church bells. If you're interested, I still have the box. I still have the letters. I still have the warranties. I still have the operating manuals. The operating manuals, Kevin, yes, indeed. When you get married, someone should give you an operating manual. How to operate a marriage. How to operate the challenges that hit you every day knowing that it's a limited warranty and that as much as you would like, you can't extend that warranty. Once it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I'm sorry, I just got a phone call. <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> Je m'appelle, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Remember Paris? I do. Je suis American, je suis American, we kept saying. And you asked, combien, as if you knew how many numbers they were going to tell you. Sometimes you were stupid. <laughs> 
sometimes I was too. I didn't mind being stupid with you. The drag of being stupid is being stupid alone. But when you're holding the hands of someone stupid at Père Lachaise or, or where? The Metro. Running. Running in Montmartre, in the rain. Finding ourselves in that doorway. That kiss you gave me. The kiss that said, we are here now. This is the moment we're in. This kiss lives just now. I miss you. I'd be lying if I said I didn't. I often wonder if you miss me, if you ever talk about me. I talk about you a lot, about the things that I've learned from you. I talk about the organization that I have because I've known you. I talk about the way that I'm able to put a room together feng shui, as you'd say. I used to wonder, am I getting the feng shui right? I don't worry about that anymore. I don't worry about much. Except driving down Larchmont and seeing you with someone. Someone past the MTV generation. Someone that was born in a time when we didn't know what a busy signal was. We didn't leave messages. A time when we wrote letters. Letters like this one. And letters like the ones in the box. I'm gonna leave the box in front of the house. You can get them when you want to. Blessings. George Earth scores movies and writes letters to Nigerian scam artists. All right, just a quick little backstory on this. Uh, I, as well as probably lots of other people, get um, these scam emails. I actually got a lot of them from all over the place and would try to sometimes answer them back. And this is one that was particularly interesting. I would always use the same character for my my uh, answering back. It's a an elderly gentleman named Stuart who has some medical problems and some <laughs> fantasies about what what Jesus means to him. But anyway, so it starts off, um, Mr. Coker is the person that's writing to him. It starts off, dear good friend, first I must solicit your confidence in this transaction. This is by virtue of its nature as being utterly confidential and secret, but I am assuring you all will be well at the end of the day. I am Mr. Raymond Coker, Chief Account Officer of Fidelity Bank PLC, Lagos, Nigeria. I contact you with believe that you are reliably discreetness and have ability to handle this confidential transaction which involves transferring of unclaimed fund to a foreign account. This is verbatim how he wrote it. Um, a French citizen, late engineer John Edward, deposited with us 20,500,000 US United States dollars only. Serious efforts are being made by Fidelity Bank PLC to get in touch with any of Edward's family or relatives to no avail. 
I now seek your permission to have you stand as next of kin to late John Edward. I am assuring you that this business is 100% risk-free. As soon as I receive acknowledgement of your acceptance of this, our mutual business proposal, we would proceed immediately. Yours sincerely, Mr. Raymond Coker. So Stuart writes, Hello, Mr. Corker. Is this a real person? I'm a bit too old to tell. I turn 80 next week. If, if this is a real person, then of course I can help as long as Jesus is in your heart and in your belly as well. Tell me, what church do you attend? Do you have pictures of the church? I miss my church. It was flooded by the storms. Do you have pets? Thank God for you finding me. Stuart. Dear Stuart, thanks for your email reply to my proposal. Happy birthday in advance, and I wish you more long life and strong health. Yes, he is a real person, and Jesus is in my heart and belly. And I would like to do this project with understanding, trust, and commitment. I attend Redeemed Christian Church of God, and I am a strong member, and my pastor has also prayed for the success of this project. And I am glad here that I met a person like you that has Jesus at heart and belly. I do not have a picture right now, but I can get one. Oh, when did the storms did that? I mean, what year? I am really sorry about it. Yes, I have a pet, but not have pets. I have my pet, and his name is Roger. Once again, I am glad I find you and hope that we will do this project in brotherly love and manner. So in that end, we become one big happy family. Note, this transaction required our total cooperation and understanding, trust, which is the strong key to every successful business and whatever we do in life. Yours sincerely, Mr. Raymond Coker. Hello, Mr. Corker. How did you know it is soon to be my birthday? That is amazing. You are really powered by Jesus to know that in advance. Though it makes me scared that I am in trouble with Jesus for not staying at the doctor yesterday. I am very upset that they are asking me to pay $53 for pills that I don't want. I am so happy that you will be visiting this summer. I have set up my bedroom so that you will fit on my bed with me and the cats that I have. Just four right now, as Jehovah has been sleeping outside lately, but he will usually come greet, he will usually come greet, hello, in the morning. I did mention to my grandson that I made a new friend in you, but he was upset with me for talking to people that I don't know on the computers. I told him you would send pictures of your church and pets, and we can show them to everyone from our old church when we meet at the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> this, this is where we have our Sunday and Wednesday morning prayer since the storms in April. This is how we hold Jesus in our belly and touch his soft mouth. <laughs> is Nigeria part of France? Is it hot there? I have put together all of the information that you asked for, but my grandson requested that I not give numbers out to strangers, only to my doctors. Is Roger your son? Who is Roger? I will write again later when my head is not hurting so much. You can send pictures before anyway, but if my grandson picks up the phone when you call, please say that you are my doctor, okay? Thank Jesus for touching our belly and holding our feet in heaven. Your friend Stuart. Dear Stuart, thank you for your wonderful reply. I hope Jesus touched you and be with you today. It is nice to hear that you did not stay at the doctor's office today. That is to tell you that Jesus is with you and walking with you. Yes, I will be visiting you in the summer should everything go as planned, and that will be my great joy to be with you on site with you to discuss and talk Jesus. Oh, I can't wait to lay on that bed. 
You you have four pets? Cats. That is nice. I have just one pet, which is Dog, and his name is Roger. That is a name I like to call him, and it makes me glad and happy. Your grandson should not be upset. He should understand that in life we meet different people from different angle, and they become one family with us. Nigeria is not part of France. Nigeria is an African country in West Africa. We have two weather here, hot and cold. Um, okay, I will wait for your information, and as soon as I receive it, I will contact a lawyer here immediately and update you for immediate proceedings. I wait for your reply with details. Thanks, and let Jesus be with you. Yours sincerely, Mr. Raymond Coker. Dear Mr. Corker, I am still feeling not very well today. I have thrown up on the floor in my grandson's house. He is angry that I did not buy the pills that I need to take. I have to ask that you not bring your dog when you come to stay with me. I don't think my cats will understand, as we do, that all creatures are part of Jesus. They are cats and don't like dogs. I can't seem to find the photo you sent of your church and pets. Please send them again. I think there is some way to make it be with the electric mail, but I am not sure. Is Africa very small? I would like to come and walk from end to end one day with you, my new best friend, though it might be more of a ride in your car as my legs are very stiff. When you come to visit, you can help rub them. My grandson will not touch them anymore, but Jesus would hold them while I sing. I am, I am, feeling, that I will, I am feeling that I will throw up again soon, so I will say goodnight for now, my dear friend. May Jesus touch your soft mouth and kiss your eyes every day. Stuart. Dear Stuart, I hope you are feeling better today. Can you try to buy the pills so you will stop throwing up? Uh, no, I am not coming with my dog. I will come alone. I will rescan my church picture and that of my pet later today as my scanning machine is not fine now. No, Africa is big, but not of America in general. Oh, you will enjoy Africa as we have many fun place to be. Yes, that will be in my car as I drive you around Nigeria, and you will see all the beautiful things we have over here. Sure, I will help rub your legs. Okay, I will be waiting to receive the information from you so we can proceed immediately. Waiting for your reply, yours sincerely, Mr. Raymond Coker. Hello, Mr. Corker. I must keep this letter short today as I am very sick. Thank you and Jesus for buying pills for me. That is very kind of you. Did my grandson contact you with the type of pills? I don't mean to bother you, but how long before you can send them? I am very sick right now. <laughs> I, am, I am very sick right now. <laughs> I am very sick right now. Please try to hurry. Um, Jesus will be near our hearts and belly, and thank you for your kind words about rubbing my legs. I can't feel my toes right now, but honestly, I believe that when you touch my legs, the power of Jesus will be in your hands, and this will bring the feeling back to my feet. How do I see the pictures of the church? What button do I press on the computers? I feel like you are the only friend left in the world, Mr. Corker. My, my grandson is very angry at me right now. Did he tell you about the car? I did not know my throw-up would ruin the seats in his car. If he told you already, I am sorry for that, and to Jesus as well. I must lay down now, my dear friend. Please write back soon. I hope you are okay, too. In Jesus, with love in my belly, Stuart. Dear Stuart, and now Mr. Mr. Coker's getting kind of mad. Dear Stuart, I am very fine and glad to read from you today. Sorry for your health. I know that very soon you will be fine and strong. No, your grandson did not contact me. Please do confirm to me that you are really interested in this deal so that we can proceed. You are yet to send me the requested information for us to proceed in this business. Mm -hmm. Hope to hear from you and know your stand. Yours sincerely, Mr. Raymond Coker. 
Dear Mr. Corker, I am very much intended on having this business with you. I have asked you repeatedly to send me the photos of your church and pets so that I might gain the love from Jesus to help you with your offer. Then you promised to send me medication, which still has not arrived. I don't want the pills anyway. I honestly believe that my grandson asked you not to send them yet. Remind me what else you need. If I need to send you a money order or check and how much it should be, please send the photos now. I have a bad feeling and want to know that you are real and that I'm just scared because of the computers. Trust in Jesus who touches our soft mouths. Stuart. <laughs> Dear Stuart, kindly view the attached file to acknowledge my church building and my pet as you requested. So this is the picture he sent of his pet. And this is the computer graphic he sent of his church. <laughs> Kindly view the attached file to acknowledge my church building and my pet as you requested. I wait for your reply. Sincerely, Raymond Coker. Dear Mr. Corker, why did you send a computer drawing of the church? Is that what it will look like in the future? Very nice. Thank you. What I requested was a picture of you with your pets in front of your current church. It is okay if it is not very big or fancy yet. Jesus will help us all later. Someday I will have a new big church too. I still need to know if you need me to send cash or a check or money order. Um, I'm feeling a lot better today. I found some old medication and I took it. I could not read the writing on the bottle, but I'm sure it will be okay. My head does feel warm though, and I'm smelling something like burnt oil. Jesus is strong in our feet and brushes our hair with his love. <laughs> Your partner and friend, Stuart. Thanks so much. T-Rex is a graphic artist and photographer, and she reads a letter that she wrote to her father. You could say I have father issues. Things have been simply awful between he and I ever since he left me and my, and my mother for some pretty young thing when I was still in high school. While he lived with us, he was mean and abusive, and I can tell you we took a hell of a lot of shit. A hell of a lot of shit. When he left, I watched my mother disintegrate right before my eyes. 20-something years later, she still hasn't been able to put herself back together again. Who my mother was before was obliterated, blotted out. It's a motherfucking tragedy, and I'm still pissed about it. Because here's the universal rule. You don't ever fuck with someone's mama. Throughout my adult life, I've been trying like hell to find forgiveness for the man I perceive to be responsible for it all. I've maintained a relationship with my father out of some warped sense of obligation, never because I wanted to. It's my duty, I've thought. He's my father. I love him. I struggle with this shit. I don't have to love him. I don't even want to love him most of the time. The rub is, despite myself, I do. In spite of all my resentments, each time I see him, I go in hoping it'll be all different. This time he'll be kind. This time he'll apologize for wrecking everything down for making everything hard. This time he'll acknowledge he's delighted in destroying everyone around him, laughing and pointing at what he's done. With him, I always knowingly walk back into the lion's den with hope in my heart that things have changed and every time my ass gets torn to shreds. It's madness. I've spent my entire life shape-shifting to please him, reorganizing my molecules at lightning speed, finding the most acceptable version of myself so that this time, I'll get out unscathed. 
but somehow I'm never acceptable. So I smile through every new horrid event. I turn off. I go dead in the eyes when I witness him setting off the charges and new demolitions of the people in his life today. I watch him annihilate his newest wife, his siblings, even perfect strangers. I watch him wreck me. I invite it even. With no one else in my life do I tolerate such massive amounts of bullshit. At my core, I'm an artist who used to paint big, and I don't know what happened, but now I paint so small. I used to feel I'd give big to the world, and I don't know what happened, but now I give so small. I used to think I'd die so big, filled up with infinite gratitude for my life well lived, and I don't know what happened, but I died so small. For you see, the last decade of my life has been spent self-destructing. I guess all this history finally caught up to me. Everything positive I believed about myself went into a vodka bottle, and everything sad, depressing, sick, and angry came out of it. Before I became small, back when I never questioned whether I would give big, do something of creative importance, back when I had courage and nothing could stop me, I fled to art school. There I wrote in paint, painting stories mostly about my father. Not that this is surprising. Every young art school bozo who wasn't painting images of Mickey Mouse with their own shit, really, was doing this same radical and groundbreaking familial work, boo-hooing about their parents in paint, clay, metal words, blood, or shit. Mostly about, I imagined, how they didn't get to borrow the sob enough in high school. <laughs> me, me, I was pissing and moaning too, but my mom didn't drive a sob. We traveled around in a cockroach-infested utility van. The last painting I ever did involved a kick-ass rendering of little child me, small in a great big world, hefting an enormous boulder over my head, teetering on rocky cliffs overlooking an angry, undulating ocean. It was disgustingly melodramatic and assuredly stupid. Today, all that melodrama makes me shudder, but back then I was proud of it. It meant something to me. A direct hit about my father and our relationship. For that relationship was something to conquer, to surmount, to accomplish. A huge, immovable mass, heavier than mountains, so futile to shove against. The weight of the earth. I decided to give this disgustingly over-meaningful painting to my father for Christmas. I knew he'd be moved, and because it was so fucking literal, be able to understand all I represented. <laughs> Painstakingly, I wrapped it, folding every crease into the cheery holiday paper with razor-sharp military precision. The beauty of those crisp edges would have made a drill sergeant cry. What this will mean to my father, elated. How much he will love me, be proud of me, respect and even idolize me for my astounding abilities. Finally, I'll break through. He would see the beauty I was finally able to squeeze from the dry, hard carbon bits of our relationship, I thought. It would change everything. He'd see how well I had clamored over all the obstacles that he had laid in our paths and pat me on the back for a job well done. On Christmas morning, I brought it downstairs to set by the tree with the rest of the gifts. Wham! My father's fist smashed me right in the chest. The painting thumped to the floor. The blow or the surprise knocked the breath out of me. Why do you paint so big? He blasted into my face. For an instant, the world just quit. It was dead still. Then a roaring rage came racing up inside my ears. He stood there challenging me to have a reaction. His thick fists still gripped tight with his big fucking college ring, the one he had such a boner over for being the first of his clan to go to school. 
The one I wanted to now savagely gnaw off his fat fucking finger and shove up his ass. If only I weren't so paralyzed by the seething, red-hot, stinging humiliation and grief now burning behind my eyes. How could I fall for trying to make it okay with him again? Don't cry, don't let a single fucking tear fall, not over this son of a bitch. I kept repeating myself while those heavy, boiling tears rode the rims of my eyes, daring to leap. Clenching my teeth, I willed them back. He hadn't even looked at it. He hadn't even appreciated the rapping. I anguished. This motherfucker. (laughs) I'll tell you, I've never seen the painting since. I don't know what happened to it. I assume it went into the trash. This is the last piece of art he ever got from me and the last large piece I ever did. All of his requests since for me to do him a pretty naked woman to hang in his bathroom have been ignored. (laughs) A few years ago, I was resurrected when I met my girlfriend. When I was the biggest disaster, living the smallest life, trapped in a well of booze, she could see me down here in the dark. When no one should have loved me, she did. My light, I am convinced, was going out when she arrived. It's strange, really. I was so accustomed to having important relationships be so incredibly difficult. Yet whenever we were at a place in our relationship where I fully expected obstacles, the gates were wide open. It had an easiness about it that I had never seen or experienced before. I love her like I have never loved anyone else, and I am so grateful to have her in my life. She makes everything better. I haven't known how to tell my father about my girlfriend, a man whose social and political viewpoints run Tea Party, a man whose television set blares Fox News all day, every day, a man who has never had anything good to say about gay people. It has been such a frightening prospect, the idea of coming out to him but I just couldn't stand another fucking second of lying and shape-shifting, covering up this part of my life, which is all of my life. So I sent a letter. Dear Dad, I have something I've been wanting to share with you, but I've been afraid. I've been working on being honest and authentic in my life, and I want to have that with you too. I want to tell you that I've met someone who makes me very happy. Her name is Mary Jo. She is awesome. I love her. I was fully ready to accept an explosion, or that my letter might have gained me a sad freedom, and that like my painting, I might never see him again. He could discard me. He could be the one to finally let this fucked up relationship go. He wrote a letter in return. My daughter, I have wondered about this for a long time. I am glad that you finally told me. I love you and always will. You are my daughter. I am also, as you must know, very proud of you. You are smart, caring, and sensitive. I would like to think that others recognize those traits in me. (laughs) (laughs) Your grandma always said she expected kindness and caring from me as anyone can be a bully. I would like to meet your friend. I would like that very much. Hun, the worst fate any of us could have would be to grow old by ourselves. Put aside your concerns and know that I will love you always, Dad. And wham, like that blow to the chest, I was stunned, out of breath. Everything was quiet, and then it roared back to me. Instead of expecting him to change, What finally caused the shift was me. What finally moved the immovable mass was my own authenticity. 
Today I give big again. Today I live big again. And today I motherfucking paint big again. Jane Entwistle, me, I read my own inflammatory letter to the Meatpackers Union. This is not a real letter that I sent, but this is a true story word for word. <laughs> Dear Meatpackers Union, I thought that it was time to express to you publicly the disappointment I have harbored all these years for what I can only describe as a bitter betrayal. I have no doubt you will not remember me. I was only a young upstart working in the seafood department of a grocery store chain in Factoria, Washington. Yeah, Factoria. <laughs> I paid my dues and wore the honor of being a member of the Meatpackers Union with pride. I learned how to clean Dungeness crab, fillet salmon, and handle whole halibut as big as myself. I created my own commercials to perform over the PA system. Not even fish guts keeping down my taste for theatrics. I would act them out, I would have jingles. It was insane, over the whole grocery store. It didn't bother me that I reeked to high heaven, although I would wash my hands in lemon juice for the benefit of my family. I have no sense of smell. Long story. It seemed a perfect marriage, fish and I. One of my daily duties was ensuring that the fish in the display case remained moist, and I hate that word. I really hate that word. We had a plastic spray bottle that we would use to mist the fish with as the circulating air in the display case wreaked havoc on the merchandise. One day, I grabbed the plain plastic water bottle and began to mist. There wasn't much water left in the bottle, so I had to pump and pump and pump. The water left in the bottle became uncharacteristically frothy, but I credited the bubbles to aeration, because I'm a scientist. <laughs> I had completed spraying the display case of fish when I noticed bubbles on the salmon fillets and the color of the salmon skin changing color. Now, this display case was epic. We had whole lobster tails, mussels in the shell, clams. I mean, it was like 800 feet long. It was huge. We had every fish known to man in this display case, and I had misted the entire case from end to end, as was my job. Suddenly, there were little bubbles on all of the fish fillets, and a mutation of fish flesh began unfolding before my eyes. I opened the water bottle and sniffed. Pointless, really. So I ran over to the deli department. Can you smell this? Why? Just fucking smell it. What is it? Dude, that's bleach. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my fucking god, oh my god, I just sprayed the entire fish case with bleach. Why would you do that? That's the deli department for you. A lot of brains there. I ran back to the seafood department in a panic. Could I wash the fish? I had a line of elderly customers wanting the Dover sole I had just wittily advertised over the PA. I can't sell you any sole right now, ma'am. Yes, I know it's odd. No, the cod isn't available either. Yes, I see it in the case, but it's not for sale. No, those bubbles aren't supposed to be there. 
I shook the bottle in the air, cursing its very existence. And that's when I noticed it. There was no Mr. Yuck sticker on the bottle. I had been sabotaged. Someone hadn't followed protocol. I wasn't to blame after all. Thank Christ! With renewed optimism, I rang my manager and explained how I was victim, along with the fish, to someone else's massive faux pas. I was told to go home immediately. <laughs> and wait. I trudged home sobbing, still wearing the grimy rubber apron covered in fish guts. At home, I sat at the kitchen table and told my family why I was home so early and still wearing my rubber apron. The phone rang. It was the store manager. I needn't come back to work. I protested feebly about the Mr. Yuck sticker and was informed that my lack of sense of smell was a liability. Feeling vomity, I called my beloved meatpackers union. I've been unjustly fired. Calm down, little lady. This is what we're here for. And they spoke like that, like they were from the 1940s. <laughs> we're going to take care of this. Just take a deep breath and start from the beginning. My family looked up simultaneously when they heard my union rep's peals of laughter echo through the phone. He said, and I quote, we can't do nothing for you. Granted, I cost the store thousands of dollars that day, but I maintain we had a protocol for a goddamn reason. If that happened now, I'd start a scathing Yelp campaign, followed by an inflammatory YouTube video, sure to go viral, of meatpackers union reps wearing nothing but Mr. Yuck stickers. I cried for a day and then got a job at the pizza store next door where I was sexually harassed for choosing a company t-shirt that wasn't tight enough. Oh, youth, what a minefield of douchery. Perhaps in the end you helped me, Meatpackers Union, by taking my money and then betraying me in my hour of need. Ralph Emerson's self-reliance at work in that gluey residue of a Mr. Yuck sticker, or lack thereof. With all my love, Jane. Thank you very much, Mark Solomon, who's been playing tirelessly. Uh, Justin Crane has been helping with the sound. And Rafa, who's Fabulous location it is. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming out to the first ever To Whom It May Concern. All those fabulous letters, your wonderful support. We're going to do this once a month. And hey, if you have a letter that you have in your closet or drawer or a letter you'd like to write, just let us know at readyourletter.com. Thank you. Thank you.